Cain. Since the attacks of 9-11 more than 20 years ago, the United States has been in a perpetual state of war. Our guest today explains how this happened and what its consequences are, from military and civilian casualties to drained public treasury at home. Norman Solomon is co-founder of RootsAction.org and executive director of the Institute for Public Accuracy. His recent book is titled, War Made Visible, How America Hides the Human Toll of Its Military Machine. Norman Solomon, welcome to All Together Now. Thanks very much, Eleanor. Pleasure to meet you. Same here. So I'm curious, um, this book is uh, very intense about the high cost, human cost, uh, financial costs of perpetual war, um, and not a cheery subject. And also you're kind of going up one of the biggest mindsets that there are in terms of what kinds of policies we should be pursuing in the United States. Why did you choose to write this book? Biggest mindsets indeed, as you say, I decided to write the book for that reason, really, because it's so ever-present in our economy, in our culture, you might say in our psychology day-to-day -day of the U.S. society that inevitably affects us in so many ways. So I thought that in a lot of respects, it was like the water that we're swimming in. And sometimes we're told uh, the fish don't think of it as water, it's just natural. And what Martin Luther King Jr. called the madness of militarism is taken as natural so routinely. We've lived through, certainly I have, I'm about 70 years old, I've lived through as an American one war after another, beginning with the Vietnam War. So here we are speaking in December of 2023 and the United States is at war, even though we're often told we no longer are at war. Right. And um, so I think our current military budget is about $880 billion. Is that right? That is correct. That's the Pentagon budget. And the way that the bookkeeping is done and the media report it, that number does not include some other important line items that end up being in the annual spending. And as I say in the book, I don't call it defense spending, I call it military spending. Unfortunately, a lot of it has nothing to do with defense. So the figure that you cite, about 850 billion with the B dollars a year, goes to the Pentagon per se. There's additional expenditure items for nuclear weapons. And then as we've seen in the last year, there are supplemental appropriations that include, for instance, enormous amounts of armaments that are purchased and shipped to Ukraine and also to Israel as well. Right, and we're over $100 billion to Ukraine alone. You know, it's interesting to me when I look at the military budget, say $880 billion, I think, oh my God, that's a huge amount of money. And if you want them to do something, you've got to pay more. Yes, so, indeed, huh? it's, it's really supplemented and we're getting all sorts of frantic signals that 
it's not enough that we have to do more and more. As a matter of fact, as we speak, Eleanor, we have a tidal wave of demands coming out of Washington frantically to send uh, through appropriations uh, more billions of dollars to the militaries of Ukraine and to the military of Israel as well. And the amount of money is just staggering. Whereas whether you live as I think you do in Massachusetts and I live in California or any other state of the United States, you don't have to go very far to see where people are lacking in adequate funds for healthcare, education, housing, elderly care, childcare, so many different ways that we're lacking with funds. So whether you want to refer to it as a moral, an ethical, a spiritual, a political issue, it boils down to a situation that Martin Luther King Jr. described, I think, very well in 1967. He said that the out-of-control military spending amounted to, and I'm quoting here, a demonic destructive suction tube. And as we are in the last weeks of 2023, that suction tube, whether we want to call it demonic or not, is having tremendously negative effects. Right. You know, the fact that we're spending huge amounts on the military means that money is not available for other things like schools and health care and education. So consequently, on the education side, we've got uh, students racking up over trillion dollars in loans that then they're stressed to try and pay. They, they feel like they can't afford to get married. They can't afford to buy a house. They can't afford to start a business if they want to because they're locked into earning the money to pay off the student loans that they've got. And some people have those loans until they're in, well into their 60s and retiring. And then uh, it's actually bleeding dry a lot of other areas and impoverishing communities and families. in and 10 countries where the U.S. outspends it, and it's increasing uh, rapidly. Uh, so, but as you acknowledge in your book, people will accept almost any cost that they think is necessary for their security. So um, how do you think we're going to change this situation? That's a key point, because on the one hand, we do need to point out the, as you say, ways. And that's a key point that is inadequately, put it mildly, inadequately mentioned uh, overall by members of Congress, with some rare exceptions, and also by mass media. 
And there's also the illusion that this makes us safer. It makes us more secure. Where in many respects, the opposite is the case. The US foreign policy, unfortunately, could be summarized as being in search of enemies. If you really go looking for enemies and you make some more and more, you're gonna find them. And it's fascinating that just in the last couple of weeks, we've had news reports, uh, accounts from the Pentagon top officials that the United States is taking military action in Syria and elsewhere to defend ourselves, to defend troops. Why are the troops there in the first place? What are they doing in Syria? Why is it necessary for the United States to be a police man or woman, depending how you look at it, and impose often through violence, trying to get its way? So that's one aspect. And it's really dubious. It's actually, I think, false, the idea that by engaging in these military actions in some parts, so many parts of the world, that the United States is making itself safer. I think the opposite is the case. What goes around does come around. Some people would call it karma. Some people would just call it a law of nature, just called human nature, that people don't generally feel receptive to the message through actions in effect do as we say, not as we do. So when the United States invades another country and then says, you shouldn't invade another country or blows people up and then says, you must not blow us up. It just doesn't watch. Um, most of the military budget is not for defense, it's for power projection. And there is, I forget the number, 150 uh, U.S. bases all over the world. You mentioned in your book, um, that's power projection. And at the same time, the U.S. has real enemies. I mean, we've got people in the in the Mideast training young young men to come along, training them to hate the United States, training them to be terrorists, to try and blow us up. And um, we saw that it did happen 9-11 right in New York City. So we have real enemies. What do you say to people say, well, you know, yes, it's a high cost of military, but if we don't try and keep strong through a strong military, then how do we, how do you propose to keep Americans safe? Yes, it's a very good question. Actually, it's it's 750 uh, U.S. military bases overseas. 750, oh my God. Yeah. And Thank uh, you. the United States is the largest uh, single arms shipper, uh, military weapons exporter on the planet, about 40% of all the international shipments of weapons comes from the United States, the US is, is first uh, by far in that category. We have, the United States has so many enemies in large part because we're making enemies. We don't have them as some kind of natural occurrence. People don't wake up uh, in Pakistan or Iraq or anywhere else and generally just say, hey, I think I'll hate the United States just for the heck of it. There are reasons 
and the use of drones, for instance, literally terrorizing uh, when people lose their loved ones, if they're injured, if they undergo trauma because of U.S. drone strikes, it, because of military actions, then they're not going to have warm and fuzzy feelings towards us. Obviously, they're going to feel that the United States has done horrible harm to them and their loved ones. And naturally, as would be the case if the shoe is on the other foot, they feel angry and maybe they feel hatred and maybe they wish to undergo a process of revenge or striking back or that sort of thing. It's really stunning, as I mentioned in this book, War Made Invisible, that when we actually look at the numbers, and of course people aren't numbers, but these figures do help us understand the scope of the problem. After 9-11, when the U.S. embarked on what it has called a war on terror, the conservative figures coming out of the Cost of War Project at Brown University tell us that about 950,000 people have been killed by the post 9-11 US wars and almost half of them are civilians. So if we take that number, a bit more than 400,000 civilians have been killed by US military actions since October of 2001. That's pretty stunning. So those are just the direct deaths. Uh, the Brown University studies found 4.5 million total deaths indirectly because of these US-led wars after 9-11. So what if those 400,000 civilians hadn't been killed by the United States? What if those 950,000 people had not died as a result directly? It's logical that we would have a lot less enemies. Right. Uh, so you're talking about the human cost of uh, U.S. military actions and being so far flung and engaged in so many different areas. Um, yeah, like, you know, you kill a terrorist, then you have five terrorists take their place because, you know, their loved ones are now have a vendetta against the United yeah. States. Yeah. So um, point well taken. You know, it's interesting to me, if you look at the United States, just even over the past 30 years, we had big tobacco had rules for decades since World War I, pushing nicotine, addictive cigarettes, and uh, promoting them on television with these ads and getting half the country hooked. And yet there was uh, evidence showing that tobacco is addictive and dangerous and causing 500,000 deaths a year. So there was a mobilization of citizens to challenge that and to put restraints on. You have to be 18 years old to buy cigarettes or you know certain restrictions and the payout by big tobacco for the damage that they caused. So that's, I think, a powerful case study of people when they get the evidence seeing what works, what doesn't, where the damage is, and holding corporations accountable. We're kind of on the front edge, I think, of that with Big Pharma, which for years had the veneer of, oh, we're, 
we create the medicine that helps sick people heal. And then we had Purdue Pharma and all the uh, addictive painkillers and holding Purdue Pharma and others accountable for the addictions that they've caused and they're saying, this isn't medicine helping sick people. This is these these are drugs that are designed to make people more addictive. So now there's a, a movement towards holding big pharma accountable, and then finally the federal government trying to rein in some of the costs. And so I think we're kind of in a, a shift in a mindset towards how we think of big pharma. But as far as I can tell, there is like zero. Uh, we're at ground zero withholding. You, there isn't even a word for it, like big military. Um, and we got big tobacco, big pharma. Where is, you know, big military? And we need to separate out, of course. We all want the United States to be secure. We want safety for all Americans here and whenever we travel. Um, but the way that it's being done right now, is, as you point out, has a tendency to actually make us less secure. And you haven't even mentioned nuclear weapons. When, when we create nuclear weapons, um, Daniel Ellsberg, who you uh, write about in your book, um, sadly, our, our, the greatest peace activist of our generation, sadly passed away earlier this year. Uh, but he pointed out more nuclear weapons makes the world less safe. And we really need to abolish all nuclear weapons so and and move towards abolition irrespective of what other countries do because that will make us more secure so um i'm wondering you know where do we begin on on breaking through to expose that the current approach of this really trillion dollars a year uh, military budget plus a action funds um huge amount of money, more than half the discretionary fund of the federal budget, bleeding other areas dry uh, when the majority of Americans are struggling financially, and it's making us less secure. How do we make that case to the American people? Who's doing that? And how do we turn this around? There are groups, of course, that are, are active, as you say, we're on the ground floor of what needs to be built what we need to create. I, I'm involved with RootsAction.org, and everybody's invited to go to RootsAction.org. We have about a million people who have signed up and are getting their action alerts. And of course, there are many, many other groups, grassroots. I know Massachusetts Peace Action does some great work. And in states around the country, uh, people have been very active. But there is a bit of a, pardon the expression, David and Goliath, not to be futuristic about it. David and Goliath uh, relationship between the huge amounts of the military spending and the propaganda, you might say, messaging, and what grassroots people are concerned about and really care about, and they're trying to move in a positive direction. When we get to these issues, I think that the education and the public information that will come from the grassroots, not from on high. The power won't, the power to change won't come from on high and the information flow that's most desperately needed won't come from above. But when it percolates upward and this program, like so many others, 
aggregate, not that individual programs or websites will do it, but the aggregate of the healthy ecology of people organizing and changing. I think that information flow is crucial because we are educating ourselves and each other. So that's the basis, that's the groundwork, the understory, you might say, for the growth of the kind of movements that we need. And then there is the organizing capacity that is largely unpacked. As you mentioned, Eleanor, we have a history when people have changed the negative realities that were taken as inevitable. And really, when I was uh, growing up, people routinely smoked in restaurants, on airplanes. There were advertisements on TV for cigarettes. And there was no warning on cigarette uh, packages. And those changes happened only because people fought tooth and nail nonviolently and effectively to make the change. I think on militarism, we're at a very early stage of what's necessary. And a lot of it has to do with political power outside the electoral arena and also inside. And when we look at the elections process and people who are elected, while being nonviolent and being very affirmative and respectful, it's really essential that we stop being deferential to people in power because they, through their appropriations and policies, have life and death decisions on their desk. And when we unduly defer to them, we're buying into a cycle of destruction rather than creative human energy coming to the fore. So I really believe that when we organize effectively, as I say, not necessarily in the context of elections, but including in the lobbying and electoral process, that means a mind shift. That means taking seriously the idea that our senators, our members of the House, they're supposed to work for us. And too often because they do something that we really value and appreciate, but we were acculturated to also proceed as though when they do things that are more deferential to the military industrial complex than to human life, that somehow uh, we shouldn't make a big deal out of it. I think we should. Yeah, well, you know, it, it all change comes from organizing some people kind of exposing the truth of what's going on and presenting another way of handling it and holding corporations accountable. We could start by coming up with a name, like what's the equivalent of big farmer? Is it like big war machine? <laughs> and, so, and you want to separate out. We, we absolutely want uh, a secure country, but we don't want hundreds of billions of dollars thrown towards weapons companies for weapon systems that, you know, may or may not be helpful and doing things that, uh, as we are now with these remote machines and technology that makes it easier and easier to kill more and more people by pressing a button. Um, so, because that, as you say, is going to uh, create more people who hate the United States and want to attack us. So, um, uh, it's a challenge. And I think one of the biggest things is just the information people get. And uh, you talk at length in 
your book here, uh, War Made Invisible. And part of why war is sort of invisible, even though it's in the news almost every night, but it's in the news in a way that fits within a small, narrow narrative that tends to be pro-military. Um, talk a little bit about uh, what's the role of the media here? Like, why is the media glorifying violence? It can actually, you know, they have been hard on some of the tobacco companies. They have been a little bit hard on some of the farmer companies, although they're big advertisers on television. So the, the, we haven't heard as much as we might there. But, you know, the weapons companies aren't advertising on the TVs. They're, you know, they got a constituency of members of Congress. That's who they're focused on. And they've got a, a lobbyist for every member of Congress. There's a lobbyist for the big uh, war companies. So what's happening with the media? Why are they falling in line with a pro big war machine narrative? I think you put it well that another way to say it is that war is visible and invisible in media at the same time. The image of war might be quite present. We might see flickering footage, we might see photographs and so forth. We might get audio on NPR or something. That is pseudo visibility. It doesn't mean we're really seeing what war is about for human beings. And I make the point in the book in some detail that there are some victims of war who are humanized in media if they are killed and injured by official enemies. So Ukraine would be an example. Civilians are really adequately covered. They are well covered in terms of their suffering in Ukraine because Russians are killing them. Whereas when the United States invaded and occupied Iraq and Afghanistan, it was very rare to have a humanized amount and type of coverage by media. And the why, as you say, there are economic and social reasons why in general, with some exceptions, US mass media are very favorable uh, towards US military actions. And when you stop and think about it, we routinely and appropriately hear ISIS or Islamic Jihad or Al-Qaeda referred to as groups that engage in terrorism. But, and I virtually never use the word never, but to my knowledge, the major media outlets of the United States, by which I mean the multi-billion dollar huge outlets, have never in their news reporting referred to the US military as engaged in terrorism. Well, experientially, if you have a drone overhead where you live and it is killing people and there are 24, those drones are 24 seven buzzing overhead, droning, so to speak, that's a form of terrorism. And civilians, as I mentioned, several hundred thousand dying as a result of US military actions you know, if we're going to have a single standard of words, then that is terrorism or can be, you know, if we're going to have a single standard, we now have that example in terms of Israel where Hamas definitely has engaged in horrific terrorism. It's inappropriate. It is 
probably an appropriate word of what happened on the 7th of October. It was terrible terrorism. What the Israeli government is doing and has been doing for two months in Gaza, if we're going to have a single standard, that also is terrorism. And on a much larger scale, uh, having killed, we know, 16,000 people, civilians, in 99% of them being civilians in Gaza, and about 40% of them children. So we, we know upwards of 5,000 children have been killed by the Israeli government. I hear U.S. mass media referring to that as terrorism. So we have a an Orwellian split here in terms of how our words are used. And to extend from there, we just in the last hours have had a vote in the U.S. Senate to fund with military aid the Israeli government. So you have U.S. senators acting as essentially accomplices to terrorism. That's a very harsh, sad reality. It's hard to go up to our senators and say, why are you an accomplice to slaughtering of civilians, even though that is an accurate description, very accurate. There's only one person in the Democratic caucus of the U.S. Senate who voted no, and that's Bernie Sanders. So these other senators who we, in many contexts, appreciate and respect, they voted to fund the slaughter of civilians, and yet the polite thing to do is not even to mention it. Well, maybe we need to become less polite. So, but my question is about the media. I mean, the media is not getting um, advertisements from McDonnell Douglas or Boeing or other weapons contractors. So you would think they would want to have that journalistic critical mindset to be able to think about um, what's going on here. There is like vast corruption in the military spending. You, you know, the people who worked in the military and the, the revolving door now working in the defense industry, military industry, um, and then vice versa. They come in from the weapons companies and come into government positions and make policy decisions from there. Mm -hmm. Yes. So, you know, they're just like it would be hitting at a barn door to be able to find this kind of self-dealing corruption, big money payoffs happening from the the uh, military spending. But you never hear any of that coming out from media. Why? Well, there is some advertising, uh, Northrop Grumman and Raytheon, especially on the Sunday talk shows on TV, they're trying to burnish their images, Boeing, for instance, and they are huge military contractors. I think that a more fundamental question is the interlock psychologically and economically between the boards of directors of uh, media outlets, the really big ones. The revolving door, as you say, exists between military contractors and high government officials in the executive and legislative branches. But there's also a revolving door between uh, the top boards of directors of major media outlets and military contractors. And also there is a relationship 
between the executive branch, the uh, war makers, you might say, that is in terms of a unified messaging and worldview. I think one way to look at it is, why are these wars happening? Well, they're tremendously profitable. The news media are part of the corporate system that thrives and is driven by massive profits. Uh, the wars are, uh, as was the case in Iraq, involved with, and I document this in the book, trying to get access to uh, raw material extraction, in that case, oil. Uh, and so access to raw materials at favorable rates and with the freedom to plunder, you might say, is huge. The geopolitical positioning, the ability to get favorable trade deals, the corporate media, uh, corporations themselves want favorable deals. Uh, they want favorable international trade tactics. And also, let's not regulated or ostensibly regulated by the FCC and, and antitrust regulation or non-regulation. So it's in the interests of a CNN or an MSNBC or a Fox to have people in the White House and in Congress who benefit uh, and will benefit them by not regulating and not having any meaningful or very having very little meaningful antitrust actions. So these corporations that may own large media outlets and own all sorts of other enterprises with billions and billions of dollars of assets, they benefit from militarism and they contribute to the members of Congress. As you mentioned, they have more than one lobbyist. They have 700 lobbyists at last count, the military industry does uh, on Capitol Hill, more than, as you say, more than each member of the House and Senate. So the relationship between media and the people in Congress who are voting for these uh, huge military outlays and the military actions and so forth, it's a very tight uh, interwoven relationship. And let's not forget that to be trashed in US media by failure or ostensible failure to vote to defend the United States or uh, attack its enemies, that's very dangerous for your political career also. And so imagine if you were a member of Congress and you vote against military aid, let's say you had the courage that Bernie Sanders just had in the Senate uh, to vote against military aid for slaughter of children and women and other civilians in Gaza, if you had the courage, what would happen in the coverage in the New York Times? I'm not just talking Fox here, I'm talking New York Times, Boston Globe, CNN. You will face a tremendous amount of attack and there will be recruitment and funding of your opponents and promotion of the idea in the news media that you maybe should not remain in the Senate, you should not remain in the house. So I think that this, to some extent, gets back to our own responsibilities, where we, in our silence, enable members of Congress, like our senators, to slip right on by and say, oh, well, you voted for the military budget, but we like you, so we're not going to make an issue of it, or you voted to send more military 
weaponry and ammunition uh, cluster bombs to Ukraine, military aid to Israel while it's killing so many civilians in Gaza. But we're not going to make an issue of it because we want you to like us. Well, that's a very um, a very corrosive oral uh, approach. It's a corrosive moral, ethical, spiritual uh, context. And uh, I learned about this a bit as a teenager because I grew up during the Vietnam War. And I saw that process where in retrospect, long after people would say, well, how could people go along with the escalation of the Vietnam War? That's how it happens. People keep their heads down. They don't want to offend those who they want to have good relationships with. Well, there is that, as we were talking about the mindset that uh, security equals military strength, and therefore you've got to vote for the money for the military strength if you want to keep Americans secure. Until you shift that mindset, that will be the kiss of death for anyone in the House and Senate, as you say. You know, Bernie Sanders uh, is very well known and highly uh, respected in his home state of Vermont. So it's probably not going to be fatal for him, but it could be for almost any other uh, elected official in in Congress. You know, it is interesting you talk uh, in your book a bit about that there are occasionally some uh, tough, independent-minded reporters at decent media outlets that do challenge the war establishment. Uh, what are the impacts when people stick their head out and challenge the narrative? It matters. It's good. It has sometimes positive effects. And yet, as I mentioned in the book, and as you as you know from uh, reading War Made Invisible, I stress the reality that in media we have repetition and we have omission. And the essence of, if you will, propaganda is repetition. I give an example. If you've watched a fair amount of TV over the years, you didn't see if you watched, that is, non you, you watched commercial television, which is almost all of it. You haven't seen one McDonald's commercial. You haven't seen five McDonald's commercials. You've seen a lot of McDonald's commercials, for example. And that's because I think it's a truism that the essence of propaganda is repetition. And so the images, the code words, the catchphrases, the ideas, the attitudes, they are cumulative in terms of their impact. And on the other hand, the omissions are also cumulative in their impact, what we don't hear. We, I mean, as humans, in part, we, we have a, a tendency to not think about what we virtually never hear about. And we aren't stimulated to or encouraged to. It's It's been said that news media maybe can't tell you exactly what to think, but can tell you what to think about. And the independent reporters have made a huge difference. And at the same time, they're an island in a sea of repetition. And that's where, I would put it this way, there are cracks in the wall, and those cracks are very important. 
but just because there are cracks, it doesn't mean there is not still a wall that has enormous effects, both what is part of the daily media messaging and also what is left out. Right. Um, you know, it's it's interesting. You're, you're talking about the, the words, the framing, everything, the, the building blocks to the mindset that keep getting repeated and reinforcing that narrative. I was interested to note that you received an award named after George Orwell. And I'm curious, in, in what, what ways do you think we use language now regarding the military that George Orwell warned us about in his book, 1984? He talked about what he called in that book, a double thing, uh, newspeak. Double thing being that certain ideas are kept on the shelf out of view, out of mind, when inconvenient. And then when convenient, they're brought and put into use only so long as they're useful for a double thing, a double standard and to keep that enforced. I think a great example is the cluster munitions. People listening to us may recall that when the Russian government um, sent its military into Ukraine, that cluster munitions were reported to be used and wow, they were denounced quite appropriately. These are some of the worst weapons known to humanity in terms of warfare. And the White House even said that perhaps that was a war crime and the news media of the US condemned it. Then fast forward about a year and a half and Ukraine was running out of weapons and the US was running out of weapons to ship. So the US shipped a huge quantity of cluster munitions to Ukraine. So that's a great example of a double thing. And Newspeak is um, a way of euphemizing meaning certain words as Orwell said in an essay on the English language, words don't make us have sloppy thoughts, but they can make it easier. And so, as you know, I, I give an example in the book, defense spending. Well, if we call the military spending defense spending, then we're already down the road towards a, so to speak, Orwellian idea that even when it has nothing to do with defense, if we call it defense, somehow we're encouraged to believe that it is. Right. And of course, the classic George Orwellian line, war is peace. And um, they kind of that sense of, well, we, we have to be perpetually at war if we want to have peace. So, for example, uh, until 1947, it was the War Department, now it's the Defense Department. Right. Um, so, we've talked about kind of the role that the media plays in and shaping how people think about um, the U.S. being perpetually at war and spending a trillion dollars a year. Um, what do you think would, is the first step on getting on a path to change the media's relationship with the governor, the government, the military, and the American people? Supporting independent media is very important and challenging 
what's called mainstream media. Do the, doing the research, if you have a critique of a media outlet, um, go through a Gandhian approach, present your concerns, try to have dialogue. If the dialogue is not fruitful, then nonviolently escalate, publicly challenge, expose, announce, engage in protests. That's part of, I think, what's key address existing so-called mainstream media while also building alternative vehicles both to make that critique and to be a good alternative to the dominant media. I'm a big supporter of the media watch group FAIR, Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting, which people can find online at FAIR.org. And FAIR is doing a great job of the research and the challenging of corporate media. Yeah, no, those media outlets are vital, and unfortunately, a lot of them are shrinking. Uh, even local newspapers dying off in groves, even big newspapers dying off. So uh, we need to have more of that. You know, it's interesting to me, um, I might have missed it in your book, but it seems to me there is a simple way to stop the war. I'm not saying it's easy, but I am saying it's simple, and that is... If we would actually follow the Constitution, which the Constitution says it is Congress that must declare war. It's Article 1, Section 8 says it's up to the Congress to declare war. If we actually did, I mean, that was a major um, construction and new governance by the, the people who founded the United States. Because up until that point, it was the king would say, we're going to war, and he'd bleed, he'd bleed his people dry with taxes and then pay for the wars that he would go on. But the hope in the founding of the United States was if they put the power into the hands of Congress, which would be more responsive more immediately to the American people, they would be much less likely to vote for war. Unfortunately, we've now had, I don't know what the current number is, something like 10 wars that Congress has never actually authorized. We have illegal wars happening now where the U.S. military is involved, but the Congress has not declared war. So what do you think about uh, that remedy of calling on the American people and the members of Congress to enact the Constitution, which says it's Congress must declare war if we go to war. I think you make a great point. And it's been a problem where whatever they say before they're elected, presidents just ignore Article 1, Section 8, and they ignore the War Powers Resolution Act, that which was passed uh, at the tail end of the Vietnam War to require within 60 days, as I recall, Congress has to approve if the Commander-in-Chief has sent the U.S. into war. The dodge has been that the President simply ignores the war, or in the case of President Obama ordering bombing of Libya, saying it's not a war. It's not hostilities, I think is the word, according to the Act from a official top uh, 
legal scholar of Yale Law School, the Obama administration hired him and then had him go to Congress to say, look, uh, the US is not engaged in military hostilities. Uh, yes, we spent $1 billion bombing Libya. Yes, uh, there are Americans in the plane bombing Libya, but it's not hostilities because no Americans have died, which says something about the solipsism and narcissism that is sort of inherent in uh, jingoistic dominant American policy. And fundamentally, as you're pointing out, until Congress asserts its power under the Constitution, we're just going to have a status quo. It's certainly not going to be initiated or propelled from Capitol Hill. It's going to come from, uh, as we've been talking about organizing and activism. Right. Uh, which says Congress must declare war. Read Article 1, Section 8. It's very clear. It, there's nothing fuzzy right. about it. Um, so, yes, we, we definitely... ...war action and other peace groups kind of pick that up and really count on it. I think it would be the the fastest, easiest way to stop these wars is to make members of Congress vote for it if they want it. And, um, you know, we were talking about uh, George Orwell and the use of language and how it is used to shape how we think and reinforce a narrative that spending um, billions on our current power projection is the way to go to keep people safe. Um, one of the phrases you talk about in the book that's very powerful, I think, is when George Bush declared war on terror. And obviously, the war on terror can never be win <laughs> because terror, you can't defeat terror. It's the tactic. It's not a country or even a group. It's a tactic. So um, talk a little bit about uh, your your sense of that as part of the Orwellian language we're using. Yes, I quote in the book um, General William Odom, who said about a year after 9-11, very much what you were pointing out, he said, you might as well say you're going to have a war on night attacks. It's a tactic. Uh, your foe might go ahead and attack at night. It might engage in terrorism, but you can't defeat a tactic. And so the root causes are much more difficult. I mean, why why do people in other countries attack U.S. troops? Well, they're there. They're in sometimes their country, killing people. And so this is a very difficult issue because it's so beat into us, so to speak, through media. There's a war on terror. It's a good thing. We must do it. And it's going to be a tremendous challenge for us to, as you have alluded to, change the mindset. And there's a sort of dialectical relationship between mindset and power. Um, we believe in the power of love. Martin Luther King Jr. warned us though. He said that while power without love is violent and cruel, love without power is anemic. And 
sentimental. So Dr. King, while he was an apostle of love, he didn't believe in love without grassroots power for social justice. And you might get into you know, an argument between Hegel and Marx about is the history of humanity, the history of consciousness or of the struggle for class justice. We can say it's both, but I think the reality is that we're shaped by our environments and pure consciousness as a social solution, I don't believe exists. I think we have a challenge to nurture humanistic consciousness at the same time that we change social conditions. So I think of it as walking on two feet. We hopefully have two legs rather than one. All right, absolutely. Uh, consciousness shapes conditions and conditions influences consciousness. So it's a yeah. both and for sure. Absolutely. You argue in your book for a single standard of human rights uh, at all times, in times of war, times of peace, um, regardless of who is involved. This issue is front and center right now with uh, the the battles that are happening raging as we talk how do we how do we get it obviously eleanor roosevelt at after world war ii did a unbelievably uh, brilliant job of, of putting together at the united nations kind of the con, you know conditions for human rights um and agreements on how to respect human rights but we seem to have trouble enforcing it. How do you think we will actually have a standard for human rights even in times of war? Only through the activation of people in the world. We were talking briefly about nuclear weapons and Albert Einstein said it's the activism and awareness of people in the world that will prevent nuclear catastrophe. That is the only hope. He said there's no secret, there's no defense. It's really people's awareness and involvement and engagement that'll make a difference. And I think that certainly applies to making sure we have a single standard or, or aspiring in a, in, a, in, a, in a very effective way to have a single standard. Um, I think of the, you know, we've been talking about various political theorists. I think of Lewis Carroll in Through the Looking Glass. In exasperation after talking with Humpty Dumpty, Alice says, but the question is, how can you make one word mean so many different things? And Humpty Dumpty replied, the question is, who has the power? That's all. And that might seem rather uh, vulgar and simplistic, but it applies to the United Nations as well. And the, the days of a unipolar, and I guess I would sort of close on this thought on that point, the days of a unipolar planet are over. One country, certainly not the United States with 4% of the world's population, cannot dominate the world and we ought to give up trying. Yeah, well, look at the cost of trying to do it and, you know, and, and it's not successful. The French figured that out in Vietnam. <laughs> Yes, good point. Absolutely. The cost of empire is too high and you, you're you going to lose. Um, yeah. And they were smart enough to pull out. Unfortunately, the United yeah. States 
was not smart enough to stay out and uh, we ended up in that mess. But, you know, and there was for a while that Vietnam syndrome, which was, my God, the empire is expensive in the blood of American soldiers that spilled and the cost to the public treasury, which meant then wonderful programs that the president wanted to enact didn't have the money for because it was going to kill people in Vietnam. So, um, but that Vietnam syndrome seems to have worn off. Would you agree? Yes, that the power of the military-industrial media complex has um, washed away a lot of the wisdom that people accumulated about the insanity of the Vietnam War. Yeah, um, and uh, we referred earlier to your conversation with Daniel Ellsberg, who, of course, released the Pentagon Papers and helped to end the Vietnam War very courageously putting his life on the line to do that. And he spent the rest of his life as a peace activist trying to prevent nuclear war. What was the single most important thing you learned from Daniel Ellsberg about creating peace? To really never give up. Every day he would talk about, think about, learn about what has happened and how we can make a better world. Yeah, and he certainly did that for the 50 years uh, after the Pentagon Papers every day. For Incredible. Sure. And what can our uh, listeners do? Um, this, these are big issues. We're up against very wealthy uh, contractors and a mindset. Um, what can our listeners do to address the situation and turn it around? Well, one specific, I invite everybody to go to rootsaction.org. That's R-O-O-T-S action.org and sign up and you'll be the one millionth and one person to be engaged in that organizing that we're doing together. Uh, fantastic. Well, that's a, a great idea. And, and did you have any final comment for our listeners before we sign off? Well, I'd really encourage people to not give up that understandably when we look at news we can feel oh i don't want to look at this it's just too awful but we're going to feel more awful if we try to avoid reality than if we go ahead and work with others to change it for the better right and i think if we can shift this mindset and shift the treasury and shift our sense of what what really gives us security then it's going to free up a ton of money it's going to save millions of lives and i think ultimately make us more secure so we certainly have an incentive to keep at it so i uh, appreciate you being with us that's all the time we have for today norman solomon author of war made invisible thank you so much for being with us today Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. For All Together Now, they're available in the PRN archives. I'll be back next Thursday. Thank you so much for joining us. This is Eleanor Lacane with All Together Now.